Good morning, how's everybody doing? Good Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Alright, so I didn't know today was going to be Father's Day up until a few days ago. And it's beautiful because the, the, the message that God put on my heart was to speak about the Father heart of God, which is awesome. And to me, coincidence, maybe not. I just think it's awesome the way the Holy Spirit moves. So I'm really excited to speak today. But when, when it comes to Father's Day, when it comes to Father's, it's either a very joyful moment for us or, or it's a very hard moment for us. Some of us have incredible fathers. Some of us have uh, mediocre fathers. Some of us have horrible fathers. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a broad range of emotions and feelings. This morning, I want to talk about God as our Father. And so this is probably one of the most profound ideas, truths in Scripture about, about the Father heart of God. And to me, it changed the way, I, the way I speak to Him, the way I relate to Him, the way that I understand that He feels about me. So with that said, just to kind of give you a little, a little uh, pre-introduction to what we're going to be doing, let's close our heads. Or close our heads. Don't close your heads. <laughs> Keep your heads open, please. We need to listen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's open up the Holy Spirit, I pray, Jesus, that your anointing would fall, God, all over this place. Lord, that the words that go forth, Lord, would not just, not just be my, my interpretation, Lord, that they be your heart towards us, God, that, Lord, that we would be brought closer into your loving arms this morning. Though we love you, God, we need you. But I need you. I can't do this without you, Father, so I pray, Jesus, that you, you uh, Lord, take over. Lord, take over. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And then, so we're in the book of Luke. So if you'd all turn to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says this it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now before we go on into the Lord's Prayer, uh, Luke's version of it, the, the, the disciple is, is an un, it's an unnamed disciple, and he asks Jesus, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. So Jesus is a rabbi. And as disciples of that rabbi, that rabbi would give you a teaching, he'd give you the, a way of life. And so Jesus, he's placing this new way of life, this new way of prayer, this new idea into his disciples. Um, the past couple times that I've spoken, we talked a lot about discipleship and what that is. And so for those of us that truly love God, that truly love Jesus, we, we're going after him with everything. This morning, this prayer is for you. This prayer is all for you. And so he tells his disciples, he says, when he prays, say this. He says, Father... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So, I want to start with some, just like some basic theological stuff. Who is God? Like, let's, let's just get some answers. Who is God? Let's, some things you know about. Who is he? Creator? Father? Friend? Love, he's king, he's judge, he's, he's majesty. Amen. He's holy. As a matter of fact, there's over 300 names, over 300 different types of descriptions that, that, that describe God throughout the, the, the entire Bible. 300. And throughout Jesus' ministry, 
he, he's constantly showing these parts of God, but none more than the Father part of God, than the name Father. That's constantly the name that Jesus addresses God by, constantly. Now we see like when, when Jesus multiplies bread, you see how he, he portrays the fact that God provides for his people. That's one of the names of God that, that the Lord provides. The, but what we want to talk about this morning is Father. So everybody say Father. Father. One more time, everybody say Father. Father. So throughout his entire ministry, he's constantly demonstrating the Father part of God, the Father part of God. He says this in John 17, 25. You can just jot that reference down in your notes. It'll be up on the projector. It says, O righteous Father, again, this is how he addresses him, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the night before Jesus' death. He's praying, he's praying this prayer to his Father. And he says, Lord, throughout this entire time, Father, the entire time I've been here, I've been revealing a part of you. I've been revealing your name, your name. And the name he just addressed them by was Father. So he constantly throughout Jesus' ministry, he's trying to reveal this truth to us. He's saying that God is my Father and he's also yours. So who likes like Old Testament fun facts? Anybody in this room you feel like that helps you spiritually? I love Old Testament fun facts. They're really cool. So the term Father in the Jewish culture is, is Abba. So everybody say Abba. Abba. It's used about 15 times throughout the, the entire Old Testament. Just about 15 times. And it's always connected to either God as the father of Israel or God as the father of specific individuals, whether that be Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or, or different individuals. But it's not very common at all. It wasn't something that the Jewish people would, would address themselves or, or call themselves or identify themselves as. They would say, our father is Abraham. Our father is Abraham and not, not so much my father is God. And Jesus is switching this. He's changing this, this entire perception of God that the Jewish people have. Okay, Jesus uses the term Abba about 65 times in the Synoptic Gospels alone. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So throughout these three first Gospels, he uses the, the name Abba 65 times. The entire Old Testament, 15. Jesus, 65. That's just in the first group. In the, the Gospel of John, he uses it over 100 times. So we have this massive change, this incredible transition. So now it's 165 times about the rest of the New Testament uses the exact, the exact word Abba twice more, that exact translation Abba. And then they use it uh, 40, at least more, 40 more times. They use the Greek translation, and that, that translation is Pathet. Everybody say Pathet. Okay, everybody say Abba. Now everybody say Pathet. Okay, same exact thing, Hebrew and Greek. Now, God is Father, we are children. God is our Father, we are children. And what I'm going to do just for the next few minutes is I want to show you theologically where this, where this, this comes from, where, where we believe that we are the children of God and God is our Father, aside from what Jesus has clearly told us. Okay? So, the term Abba is an intimate term of endearment. It could actually be translated Daddy or Papa. Imagine a, little, a small little child, a small little child sitting on their father's lap, and just looking into his eyes and saying, Papa or Daddy. And fathers, you know what that does to you, that, that feeling that that puts inside of your soul. It's like this warmth that you can't describe. And that's the term that Jesus is telling his disciples 
This is how I want you to address God. Call him Papa. Call him Daddy. Understand the intimacy there. It's not just this faraway, transcendent God. See, the Jews believed in God. They believed in God, but they had this he's out of reach kind of thing because they had to enter into the, into the temple and go through all these different rituals to get to him. And Jesus says, no, you, my disciples, that's you. He says, address him as Papa, as Daddy. There's intimacy there. Isn't that beautiful? This is the relationship Jesus makes possible for those that are born again. And John 1.12, you can jot this down in your notes, John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave us the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of even the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Everybody say that. Born of God. Born of God. This is huge. To be born of God. I want to talk about blood, DNA, genetics, all these different things. Again, it's Father's Day, so be very sensitive. Your father is your father. Whether that's a good thing to you or that's a bad thing, we can't change that fact. Our father is our father, your earthly father. His blood runs through your veins. His DNA makes up who you are. That's just how it is. And again, that can be painful or it can be scary or, or it can be beautiful. Now, when, when the Gospel of John, when the writer says, born of God, not of flesh, born of God, that, that's to be begotten. Begotten of God. That means God's DNA. That means God's blood. That means God's character characteristics, his genetics. That is all flowing through every single disciple right here, right now. And whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, you can't change that. In the same way that I cannot remove my, my biological father's DNA from my system, we cannot remove our father God's DNA from our system. Isn't that beautiful? So no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how far you stray, if you're his son or his daughter, you are his son or his daughter. And you can't change that. And we're going to get into some, some incredible stories as to where he shows that. Born of God. So as children of God, we are defined by his very nature. Romans 8.14. And you can jot this down in your notes. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you look up at the text, notice how the second one where it says spirit of adoption, notice how it's capitalized. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has different names throughout the New Testament. He's called the Spirit of Truth. Uh, spirit of adoption, etc. Basically, whatever's tagged behind that name, it means this is a part of God that He's trying to reveal to us as God's children. So the spirit of adoption is something that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal in our hearts. There's something beautiful behind it that is so valuable that the Lord wants to reveal to us. Spirit of adoption. So everybody say, born of God. Born of God. Now everybody say, adopted by God. Adopted by God. So, as I was studying, I was like, okay, God, what the heck, which one is it? Am I born of you or am I adopted by you? See, in our culture, adoption, it's not, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not the same thing. It's beautiful, but it's not the same. We just don't view it the same way. We view biological as so much closer and adopted, it's kind of, you know, kind of wobbly a little bit. 
Now, as I started to study in culture and history, I love history, so I just, I, I think it's, it's awesome. And it's incredible to me to see the way that God uses just incredible things, things that you would never expect to get these incredible truths to us. So who's ever heard of Babylon? Raise your hand if you've heard of Babylon. Who's ever heard of the Persian Empire? Yeah, so between 538 and 332 BC, the Israel people, the Hebrew people were in captivity to the Babylonians, which was then overtaken by the Persian Empire, under which they're still captive, they're still in bondage to them. It's not a harsh bondage, but, but, it's, but it, it's there. They're not their own thing. Now, what happens is they're, they're there for about 200 years, so culture begins to intertwine. So Persian culture and Mede culture, which is what it was, the Medes and the, and the Persians, begins to blend in with Jewish culture. And it's incredible to see how God uses this. Okay. The Medes and Persians believed that their kings had descended from gods. They actually believed, much like the Egyptians, much like, like a lot of ancient cultures, that their, their kings, their, their, their emperors, were gods themselves. They were sons of deity. And so when a king made a law, it was infallible. When a king set, set forth something, when he, when he put his signature on something, it could no longer ever be changed by any human being, ever, because it was divine. It was godlike. It had absolute authority. The king himself could not change it, because if the king were to change a law that he made, he would be demonstrating he wasn't truly a god, because he changed his mind in something. Okay? And for a lot of us, like, dude, I don't care. I don't want to come to a history lesson. But this is so beautiful to see. So all the laws were either issued by the king himself or received his direct seal of approval. They would receive his direct seal. That's like a signature. It's like a stamp that he would place on any document, and it became absolutely unchangeable. Now, just to prove this to you so you guys don't think I'm just making stuff up, because sometimes I think I make stuff up a little bit. So let's turn to Esther. You don't have to, well, it'll be up there, but jot this down just for your historical minds. Esther chapter 1, verse 19. This is during this captivity. It says, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. Then Vashti is never again to come before King Ashuras, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. This is where Esther comes in, the story of Esther. Now Esther has the opportunity and she's given this incredible place where she, she becomes the queen. But notice how it's said among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may never be changed, it may not be repealed. Now go to Esther 8.8. 8. It says, But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. So here's that seal. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Daniel 6, 8. Now will king establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had, or where had, uh, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And you know the rest of the story of Daniel. Daniel, regardless of the edict that, that Darius had signed, that you cannot pray to anybody but the king, you couldn't worship anybody but the king, Daniel flings his windows open and prays so that people can see. He didn't care. He was still going to worship God because he loved him. He was never going to let that go. But the thing I want us to catch is that the king could not change. Not even the king could change this. 
Later on, when Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, Darius' heart, he loved Daniel. And so he wanted to rescue Daniel. But then, then his advisors say, oh, no, 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 king, you can't go against your own word. Otherwise, the people will know. The people will begin to believe something different. They won't see you as a deity. So these laws cannot be changed. Now, during this time in captivity, back to that, the Medes and the Persians had what are called family laws that the kings created. Family laws, I'm just going to tell you about two of them. The first one, and this might sound odd to our Western culture, or it might sound attractive, um, depending on how much your kid is frustrating right now. Maybe they're a teenager and you kind of want them out a little bit. But they had this law that if your kids were rebellious and disobedient and you just didn't like them anymore, you could legally divorce your kids. But it wasn't just a divorce, it was a complete disownership. Your own biological kids, you can completely disown them, have nothing to do with them. They were never... If you, if you went to this extent, it, never, it didn't even matter if you made up with your kid in the future. They could never come back as one of your own children. Because the king's seal of approval was placed on the document that you signed saying, I don't want this kid anymore as my own. And so now it was permanent, unchangeable, because the king signed it. So they could divorce, they could disown their own kids. Again, some of you guys are like, oh man, I wish I was in the Persian Empire right now, my teenager. It's getting a little rough. Then they had a second one. A second law. This is a law of adoption. Now, for the mean of the Persian Empire, there always stood the chance that you would get frustrated with your kid and go divorce your own kid and never be able to get your kid back again. So the king, unable to change this law, began to see the distress it was causing some of the people. So he created this second law that didn't change it but it, it created a prevention of it. And this was called the law of adoption. And so parents, their own biological children, they would go to the king and say, I want to adopt my own child. And so when they would adopt their own child, the seal of the king would be on that document, and no matter what your kid did, you never had an opportunity ever again to ever separate from them. It was permanent, it was sealed under the command of the king, it was unchangeable, it was unfallible. Your own child was your own child forever and ever. And no matter what they did, no matter what you wanted to do, nothing could change that. So this bleeds in the Jewish culture. Isn't it incredible to see how God can use the hard times in our lives, the captivities and the bondages, to make something so beautiful come into our life? He uses the bondage of the Israelites here so he can then use Paul to bring up again this idea of adoption and the original readers would have seen what he was talking about. They would have known, oh my gosh, we've been sealed by the king's stamp. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, adopted as sons. That doesn't change anymore. That's incredible to me. To me, that's so cool. So we're both born and adopted. So everybody say, I'm born of God. Everybody say, I'm adopted by God. So we're born again by God and then marked as still by the power of the Spirit that we might never be separated from the love of our Father. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Doesn't that make so much more sense now that you know Persian and Mede history? It makes a lot more sense to understand what that's talking about now. 
Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1.22, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay. Just let that settle in. You've been born, you've been adopted, you've been sealed. It is what it is. And no matter what you want to do, you can't change it. That's powerful. But that's just theology. That's powerful, but it's just theology. See, theology is a beautiful thing, but it doesn't change hearts. God changes hearts when we allow Him to. So we can have all the right ideas. You guys can walk away from this and be like, man, thousand. That was cool. I like that history lesson you did. Dude, I hate history. I can't stand means or versions at all ever again. But regardless, that doesn't change your heart. What changes our hearts is the love of our Father. So theology lesson breakdown, just to kind of review what I just what I just showed you guys. God is our Father. We're reborn of Him. God then adopts us. The combinations of these two truths means that it can never be changed or altered. So that's positional. That means we can all believe right now in our heads, positionally, I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. But when the storms of life come around, your positional theology doesn't hold you down. It's a relational truth, a relational revelation of God that holds us. He is our foundation, not just the thought of God. God himself is our foundation. You see, God doesn't want you to know about him. He wants you to know him. So we, so we, we got this, this beautiful part. Now, the reason why Paul uses this the way he does, he, he, he uses a lot of philosophical what methods that he does, because he's speaking to the Greeks, and Greeks were all about philosophy. They loved Thoughts. They love these profound statements that they could think about for a week and a half and never even understand it still. But they love that. They love that. So Paul says, I've become all things to all men that all of them may know the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he reaches out to these Greeks in philosophy. Jews thought differently. Who here has ADD? Anybody? All the teenagers, apparently. <laughs> Every teenager in just went up. That's right. I don't think that's ADD. I think that's hormones, maybe. I don't know if we can call it ADD. Hormones. If it's that kind of percentage, I don't know about that. When I think about the Jewish mind versus the Greek mind, I mean, this isn't, it's not like derogatory. I don't mean this in a mean way. But I think about the way that, 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 that there's like learning disabilities that people have, where you can't be taught just by somebody speaking at you. You need to be shown something. Jews were a lot like that. They needed pictures. So whenever they're taught, whenever a rabbi speaks, he wouldn't say, God is love. He'd say, God is a father. And so the Jewish mind would begin to connect father, love, goodness, provider, strength, strength, like all these different things. He would not just have a thought. He would have an image that he couldn't get away from. So the Greeks would say, God is my protector. The Jew would say, God is my shield. And they would imagine exactly what that means to have a shield. So, we have the theology. So you guys are all officially Greek thinkers, okay? You have the theology. You have all the thoughts. Now you can process it, wrestle with it. Jesus does something beautiful. And he illustrates, he gives us a picture 
of what God the Father is. You guys have all heard of the prodigal son, right? Yeah, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the prodigal son. I believe you. We call it the story of the prodigal son. It can be taught that way. It's beautiful. We can talk about the first brother, the second brother, whatever, and that's awesome. That's the beautiful thing about the Word of God. It's so versatile. I want to talk about the waiting father. So if you turn with me to Luke 15, verse 11, this will be up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his, into his fields of pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we can talk about the son. The way the son runs away from the father, the way the son disgraces the father in such a way. I mean, he's saying, Dad, I, love, I mean, you're a cool guy, but I really want my stuff. I mean, I don't want you to die or anything, but I can't get my stuff till you're dead. So, you know, maybe let's work this deal out and you give me my stuff and you can just die later. You know, and I'll come back maybe for your funeral or something. Totally disgraceful. And if we were, I mean, if that, dude, is that I did that to me? Oh, man. I can't even. Dang. It's like Ron's story, he'd be a foot up in the air or something. There'd be a foot up somewhere, I don't know. What? Ouch. Who said that? There'd be a foot Church, up somewhere. Church, man, I believe in this. It says in verse 17, When the boy came to himself, he said, who loves that? Okay, what parents love like when your kid like finally realizes something like, oh wow, my parents actually didn't know what they were talking about for that first 25 years of my life. As soon as I got married, I realized so much, so much that like my dad was suddenly the most brilliant man I'd ever met. My mom was always right, and I was like, I can't believe I was so stupid. Are you kidding? Me? And, I mean, even before I go on this, this is something that the Lord was putting on my heart. It's funny, like, when I begin to preach a message, it seems like God begins to orchestrate things in my life that teach me the message, so I don't just deliver it. Um, if you remember when I talked about Peter, and when the call of the disciples, and how they didn't sleep all night, and how Jesus comes to them and tells them, okay, guys, let's get to work. Guess what? The night before I preach, I didn't sleep all night. It's like God's like, dude, before you preach this, you're going to experience this. You're going you're to learn what it means to serve me when you're exhausted. Now, when it came to the Father heart of God, suddenly Zephaniah became, like, infinitely more attached to me than he ever has been. When he, on Wednesday night, Thursday was my sermon prep day, so I was trying to get as much rest as I could. He didn't sleep. He woke up at 2 in the morning. I went into his room with him. I laid with him. He wanted a stinking banana. <laughs> so dude, it's two in the morning. Give him a banana. So I give him a banana. He eats most of the banana, then he throws the rest of it on my face. And then he wants milk. I don't want to give him milk because it's bad for your teeth when you go to sleep. So if you guys didn't know this, don't go to sleep with milk in your mouth. Apparently, it's really bad for your teeth. But he wanted milk, so I gave him water. He didn't want water. He throws a fit. By this time, it's like three thirty in the morning. I'm like, dude, okay, I'll get you the iPad. I will bring you the iPad. We'll watch a movie together. I put on the most boring, I mean, I love the movie, but out of all the new movies, I mean, new Disney movies 
are like, they're like extravagant. They can't do entertainment. So I was like, okay, let's put on a classic. Let's put on Jungle Book. That'll put him to sleep, man. No, he watches the entire stinking Jungle Book movie. That's an hour and a half of a movie, and he's still awake. It's like four or five at this point. And I'm like, dude, I'm just going to wrestle you until you fall asleep or something. So I just held him down, and finally he passed out. And so I went to sleep at 5.30 that morning. But it was beautiful because God was showing me something about his father heart there where, for me, all I wanted him to go do was sleep. And then there'd be moments like where I loved being with him and I loved like, man, God, this is so cool, but I'm, just, I'm really tired, really want to go to bed. And God was like, see, the beautiful thing about my fatherhood to you is I never have to leave. I never leave you. I never just put you in your bed and then go do my own thing. I'm always with you. And it's beautiful. So I experienced that this week. Then God brought back to my mind this story. And my dad's here. My dad, love you. I love you. You're a cool guy. And it's probably the most hurtful thing that I, I don't know. I haven't even talked to my dad about this, but it's probably one of the most hurtful things that I did to him that I remember. It scarred me really bad. I don't know why I did it, other than I was a teenager and I thought I knew everything. But we were coming back from church one day. In my family, we had gone through some hard stuff, so I, I became a very closed in, very hurt, very angry, very aggressive boy. I, I didn't want anybody to talk to me. I hated everybody, specifically church. I despised church. Like, I just had like this aggression towards it. And then the, like, the thought of it made me sick. So we just got back from church, so I'm, I'm pretty ticked off at this point. Huh? I don't like people, I don't like church, and I just had both of them at the same time, overdose of people in church. So I was upset. And my father, my dad, remember he was asking me, he was saying something like, he was trying to ask me questions, he was trying to get to know me and, and be a good father. And he, he asked me something, and I said something that, that, that I can't get out of my mind, and I couldn't get it out of my mind this week. And I told him, I said something like, why are you trying so hard now, it's too late, or something like that. And I remember like, I remember seeing how it affected him. And it hurts me to know I didn't care at that time. And it reminds me of the prodigal son in that sense that, you know what? Yeah, you're a good father. I don't care. I'm going to go do my thing. So dad, I just want to apologize. You're awesome. You're, you're an incredible person. But this boy comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he, he plots this, he plans this, he, he like he writes up a repentance story. He writes up this apology. He's ready to go. He's probably rehearsing it all the way home. Sounds like, okay, 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 I gotta get this, gotta get this. Oh man, what if he doesn't like me anymore? What if he hates me? What if whatever? Okay, I just gotta try, I gotta try. It's this or pig food, and I hate pig food, so let's go with this, you know? And so he says, he arose and he came to his father. But but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to her father, I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it 
and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You see, we run back to our Father. We come back to our Heavenly Father from sin or whatever it is. And we're afraid of Him. We have this sense of fear. What is He going to do? But when we're a long way off, man, before you even get close, your Father's looking for you. He's sitting there on his porch in his rocking chair and he's staring off into the horizon saying, maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that he'll realize who I am and he'll come back or she'll come back into me. And the moment he sees his son, the moment he sees this son at the horizon, he runs to him. This was disgrace in Jewish culture. For an older man to run, that was, it was disgraceful. He doesn't care. God doesn't care about social norms. God doesn't have a hindrance. He doesn't hold himself back because somebody else does. Maybe your father left you. Maybe your father hurt you. God never does. His heart is always for you. And so he sees his son and he runs to him. And he throws his arms. This kid was just feeding pigs. He stinks. Really, really bad. He does not, this kid is not clean. And he throws his arms around him. One of the other, one of the other uh, gospels says he begins to kiss him on his neck. He's just kissing, just smothering this kid. And could you imagine being this kid with so much shame, so much guilt, knowing what you did to your father? And that's how he embraces you? With a love that doesn't even speak words. And then the son starts to rattle off. He starts to say, Father, I mean, he's like, oh gosh, what the heck is going on? Okay, I gotta remember, I gotta get back into it. I gotta go back with my repentance. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the father just interrupts him like, dude, shut up, man. Like, I love you. I love you. You don't need, I get it. You're here. That's what matters. You're here. And he says, bring out the robe. Bring out the robe of honor, the best robe. This robe was only for insanely honored guests in your home. You did not put this robe on filth. And the father does exactly that. This boy that had completely broken his heart, who's completely disgusting from head to toe, and he places the robe of honor on him. And then he says, and bring out the ring, bring out my ring. He puts on uh, the ring on his finger. Now, a ring in Jewish culture is like, it's like your father saying, it's like somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, I'm going to put your name on my checking account. You can sign checks. You have authority. So he takes this younger son, and despite how he had behaved, he gives him this ring of authority. He says, you are not just partially my son. You're not my son with exceptions. I'm not putting these borders around what you can and can't do as my son. I'm giving you the, the authority that you had before you ever left. And he places this on his son's hand. Then he says, bring up the fat cat. This guy just goes to travel. He's like, dude, let's just party it up now. Bring out the fattened calf. This is the calf that is saved for the most glorious of moments. And the son the whole time is probably thinking, you're, you are killing me with your kindness. One of the most beautiful things about God the Father, there's discipline. There's absolutely discipline in his kingdom. But it's always love. 
The Lord smothers us with so much love. How could we not change? How could we not desire to be one of His own? But, again, there's this, this positional versus relational problem. Some of us, for so long, have viewed God as this man upstairs that's ready to just, just smack me the moment he gets a chance. And the idea of a father's embrace, despite my disgust, doesn't register with our hearts. But our lives don't change until that registers with our hearts. Because we're still trying to impress a dictator. The son says, let me be a servant, not a son. Make me one of your servants. See, servants lived in a completely different place. They didn't live in the place of the Father. They lived at a distance. Too many Christians, you're living at a distance. Thinking that you have to come somewhere to seek God. Sons live in the very presence of their father. Servants can be fired. Be removed. They, you know, they don't no longer have to serve you. If you don't like what they do, you kick them out. Sons, adopted sons even. That never changes. You're always his. The Father's looking for you. He desires and he fills for you. He's running to you. He's embracing you. He wants to kiss you. He forgives you before you even ask. Repentance is huge, but I think a lot of times we think that I need to do something in order to get his love. No, the love's there. The question is, repentance is you opening the door back up to his love. That's all that it is. It's beautiful. It's, an, it's such an incredible thing. But he loves you regardless, and he celebrates you. He celebrates you. When you return home, when, we, when we're in the presence of our Father, like, okay, God loves everybody, right? For God so loved the world. But God does not enjoy everybody. God does not enjoy sin. So when a person is living constantly in the nature of sin, God cannot find enjoyment in that. But when you're adopted and as a son, God literally enjoys you. And we may think we need to be perfect in order to be enjoyed by God. That's not true. See, what God loves is to see that you're fighting the battle. If you're waging war with your sin, the Lord is pleased. Too many of us think we need to reach this certain pinnacle moment in our lives, and then the Lord is pleased. No, He loved the Son before the Son ever proved anything to Him. The Son had just arrived back home. He hadn't even had an opportunity to prove that He was genuine. And the Father just loves on him. Just loves on him. We're children, we're not slaves. Say, I'm not a slave. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. Luke 11, 5. Then teaching them more about prayer. This is back to our original text. Then teaching them more about prayer. Here's this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. And you say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived from a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. 
And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this though, he won't do it for friendship's sake. If you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and you will give him whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. This is trying to teach you something, we're going to break it down in a minute. And so I will tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. You fathers, if you children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The entire point of 11, 1 through 13, is that your Father is willing. Your Father loves you. And if we can treat our kids with love, how much more so can the perfect Father treat and embrace us? So why do we fear? Why do we doubt Him? Why do we begin to walk away? Regardless of what it is that takes us away from Him, the beautiful picture about the prodigal son is He's always there waiting for you. Always, always there. Children approach God with confidence. Zephaniah does not come up to me afraid of me. He comes up to me because he knows I love him. So when I walk in through the door, when I get home, he, I mean, it's the most incredible experience ever. His eyes catch my eyes and he just says, Dad. And he just comes up to me with his arms. And he doesn't, like, he comes up to me with his arms straight up because he knows I'm not going to pass by him. He knows I'm going to, how can I resist? Father God enjoys you that way. You come home with your arms up, he's not going to pass you by. He can't resist but pick you up into his loving arms and embrace you in ways you've never experienced. Papa loves us. God loves it when we love him as his children. Hebrews 4.16 says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Ephesians 3.12, because of Christ and our faith in Him, we can now come boldly and confidently into His presence. And so now we can understand the prayer that Jesus is teaching His disciples, the new way that He's teaching His disciples. Like every Jewish rabbi taught His disciples, Jesus is giving us something fresh to change the way we see God. And He starts it out by saying, talk to Him like this. Papa, Daddy, not Sir. There's a, there's respect, absolutely, but there's more, there's intimacy. Now God is a king, right? So our Father is a king. This is something the Lord told me to make sure I clear up, so this doesn't become irreverent. Our Father is a king. If your actual earthly father was a king, you would not treat him disrespectfully. But as a loving child, you're not a servant, but you serve him. You're not a servant, but you do serve. 
because you love and because he loves you. I mean, imagine a prince or a, or a princess that just totally disgraces their father. I watch a lot of Disney movies, so I think about Little Mermaid. Okay? That lady, man. Teenage girls should not be swimming up on the shore with men. That is not okay. I don't know what Disney's teaching our kids. But he's saying, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Here's how I understand this. Daddy, you're awesome. No one compares. Have your way because I know it's best. Provide for me because you know my needs. Forgive me. Teach me to love as you love me. Protect me because you are so much stronger. Basically, Papa, I trust you. Father, I trust you. Some of us suffer from what's called an orphan spirit, but I, I understand to be an orphan spirit with God. And if you've ever seen orphans, um, well, at least ones I've encountered, there's this degree of, they've been abandoned, they've been hurt, so they're very shut in, very shameful, very afraid, very isolated, very insecure. They don't really know what love is because they've never been shown what love is. Too many Christians, we live as if we are orphans to God. We live like we're an orphan, we're afraid of Him, we're shameful before Him. We sin and we think we need to hide. That's what Adam and Eve did. We think we need to hide. We're insecure. God, I'm not good enough. It'd be like me walking from this pulpit, Lord, that sermon, man, that was not, what just wasn't good enough. I'm so sorry I failed. Or, or, or it's us serving in the church or something to say, God, dang it, man, I, just, I didn't do a good enough job. We're insecure before Him. It's orphan spirit. It's not a child spirit, it's an orphan. We isolate, we, we, we act like he's not there. We think we're all alone. But the Father wants to heal us and love us. He wants you to know, again, not just about him, but he wants you to know him. The Lord desires intimacy. Papa desires intimacy with you, not religion. If we just worship because we're supposed to worship, he doesn't like that. Doesn't please him. What pleases him is a loving heart that then worships. That's beautiful. That's intimacy. That's a papa-son relationship. So you guys know Zeph and I. If you don't know, he's stinking adorable. I should have put a picture. He's so cute. I'm a father, so I can just say this. I have the cutest kids, okay? As a guy, is adorable. I wake up every morning, he just smiles for no reason. I don't even know what he thinks is funny. Maybe it's my face, I don't know. He just smiles, like, for no reason. He just smiles all the time. And it, it gives me so much love, so much warmth in my heart. As Zephy was, was, was learning how to walk and, and do this kid, I, I, like one and a half, even younger than that, the moment he learned how to walk and run, he learned how to jump. Somehow it all happened simultaneously. I don't know how. But he started to climb up on the couch, and he does front flips off of the couch at one and a half. Front, like, legitimate, like, somersault in the air off the couch. And I learned to put pillows, because otherwise it's a little damaging to his little brain, poor guy. But he loves, he's exhilarating. He he's just this daredevil. He just, he doesn't care. He's no fear. He just does whatever. Now... Again, because I'm his father, 
And because I've shown him love, he understands something about me. He understands something about himself. There's something about his worldview that's already forming that he knows when I can't do it, Daddy can. He knows when there's when there's something, when there's a place that I want to get to, but it's too high for me to climb, Daddy's a little taller. A little taller, I'm not short, but <laughs> But that's what he thinks. He knows that. He says, he will pick me up. If I just go to him and I say, Dad, Dad, and then I point to something, he knows I'm not going to just tell him to go away. I'm going to pick him up, and I'm going to put him exactly where he wants to be. Now, the other side of the coin is Father's heart is also protective. So the place he happens to want to be is on top of the stove. I'm not going to be like, oh, I love you so much. Here you go. Enjoy the fire. You know? Make me a sandwich or something while you're up there, but... But he knows that I know what's best for him. He just knows that. He knows he can trust me. He knows that if there's something he wants or something he needs, he can come to me, and I'm not going to hit him on the head and tell him, go do it yourself. And one of those beautiful things is when he wants me to pick him up, he gives me his hands. He puts his hands in my hands. And so I pick him up by his hands and then he's just, he's ready. He knows then this is going to be so much more fun now that daddy's around. It's the same thing with our Heavenly Father. We need to learn to hold our Father's hand. We need to learn to hold on to his goodness, hold on to his love, and let him take us places we can never go on our own. Let him lift us up to heights that he can never, or that we can never go to on our own. He tells the disciples he must be like these. He's pointing to little children. Little children are humble in heart. They really are. I mean, they're kind of selfish sometimes, but they don't understand it. There's a humility there. There's a level of humility there. It says that the Lord will lift up the humble. So when we have a humble child heart that just loves and trusts our Father, man, believe me, your Father's going to take you places. He's going to do things for you and with you that you can never do on your own. And that is the beauty of the Father heart of God. He wants you, not something from you. Now this, in closing, is one of the most profound things that I see in Scripture. If you'll turn with me to John 17, 23. Jesus says this, I am in them, and you are in me, speaking to his Father. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Oh my goodness. Father loves Jesus with perfect love. Jesus just said he loves you. Not a little less than, but exactly like he loves Jesus. So I want everybody, real quick, I want you to say, if you say so, Daddy. If you say so, Daddy. Say it one more time. 
And this is the last part the Holy Spirit asked me to, 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 to walk us through. So many of us have had so much junk spoken over our lives. Again, some of us have had horrible experiences with fathers. Trust has been broken beyond any measure that we can even begin to talk about. And we can begin to walk around with this, this persona that I am a disgrace. I am a failure. Nobody likes me. I'll never succeed. We need to learn this phrase. If you say so, daddy. Because it no longer matters to the Christian, to the born-again son, what the world says or what anybody else says. What matters is what your father says. And he just said he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. So shake that shame off because that's not who he says you are. So when somebody says, you know what, dude, you're just a failure, you'd be like, no, it's not what my daddy says. That is not what my daddy says. And so I won't accept it. It says, guard your heart. We need to learn how to guard our hearts from the hurt, the hurt, the pain, all the attacks of the enemy, and say, if you say so, Dad, I am loved. I'm not shameful. You've covered my shame with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm not who I used to be. I'm a new creation. I am not like my parents. I'm like you as my parent. So again, I want you to muster up everything you have inside of you. And on the count of three, you're going to say, if you say so, Daddy. Ready? One, two, three. If you say so, Daddy. Amen. Now let's say it like we actually mean it and like hell has no power. Listen. Step out of positional relationship and step into relational. Let's do it. Let's step out of our positional, step into relational. He is right here. He is with you. He's inside of you. And he says, I love you. Not for who you're going to become. I love you. Not for what you're going to do for me. I love you. So, count of three, you're going to say, if I say, or if you say so, Dad, with everything you have, one, two, three. Amen, amen, amen. You may have had a good dad. You may have had a horrible dad, but only he is the perfect dad. He desires to father you more than anything. Fathers in this room, let us learn from him and let us learn to love our families as he loves us. If you failed as a father, let him redeem you. Let him teach you. Let him love you. Let him heal you. If your father failed you, forgive as you've been forgiven. And allow God as your father to give you what you long for. He loves you. So long, for so, for so much of our lives, maybe this, this is exactly what you've been waiting to hear from your father. So I'm going to say it in the first person. I'm not God, but I'm speaking for God right now, okay? He says, I love you. I'm proud of you. I enjoy you. I will never hurt you. I will never break your heart. I will never break your trust. 
and I will literally always be here with you. Your father's heart is toward you, and he wants you. He's our father. He is father. This is something cool that I came up with. Go to that, uh, that he is father's son, or thing. Next one. Or maybe there's one before that. Yeah. He is father. He's faithful forever, always around, thoughtfully tender, helpfully honest, eternally endearing, and relentlessly receiving. He is father. Father is love. Let's let him in. Let's let him in. Let the prodigal son, man, take the kisses. Take the embrace. Take the love. Drop the shame. Drop the fear. And when you pray to God our Father, stop praying like he's far away. Understand, he's your Papa. And he is right there with you. All he wants, man, is your arms stretched out and he will pick you up. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Your inheritance is guaranteed. Like the Persian and Mede kings, it's not changing. Our Father doesn't go back on His word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, we love you. We praise you, Papa. We worship you. But God, we come before your feet, God. And we, we, we sit with you, God, in intimacy and love. God, we accept everything that you have for us. But right now, I just speak healing, God, over every person in this room, Lord, that has been abused or, or injured or hurt by their earthly father. That was a poor representation of what fatherhood is. God, may they begin to rest in your loving embrace. May they be healed by your love. Lord, and those of us that have had good Lord or good fathers, God, may we be thankful, but understand that even that doesn't compare to your love for us. Jesus, we wish you a happy Father's Day this morning. We thank you for who you are, what you've done, what you continue to do. You're so good. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. All right. Love you guys. Hope you were blessed.